Uh, well, welcome to a, another day as we continue through the Word of God. And uh, we're continuing our journey today through the book of Colossians. And I hope that you are really enjoying this. Now, as I always tell you, if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, please go ahead and do that. My Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards. My Instagram page, AP Richards, please like that. Comment, subscribe, uh, share these videos. Let's do as much as we can to get the truth of God's word out for everybody to, to understand it so they can apply it to their lives. Now, uh, today we're, we're doing the second half of Colossians chapter 2. So we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 23. Now, the, remember the book of Colossians, written by Paul to the church in Colossae. He's never been there. Uh, it had been set up by, by uh, somebody who was saved under Paul's ministry, we think. Uh, his name was Epaphras. And, uh, and, and there's some problems going on in the church in Colossae. And, and Paul is addressing the, the heresy. It's called the, you know, the Colossian heresy. It's not actually outlined what the heresy was, to be honest with you. We, 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 we have to really read into what areas Paul addressed in the book to give us an indication of what the heresies actually were. Um, if that makes sense. So we're going to continue today with uh, starting off with verse 11 in Colossians chapter 2. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Paul here is now going into a whole different topic than what he was at the beginning of chapter 2. Most of the Colossian Christians were Gentiles. They'd never been physically circumcised. And Paul is assuring them that they were actually circumcised in a spiritual sense, which is even more important than physical circumcision. The, the Colossian Christians had to deal with uh, a whole lot of false teaching, and they didn't know whether it was true or not. They didn't have any reference point. Not only did they have wrong ideas about Jesus, but they also had wrong ideas about things like circumcision, because apparently they were being taught that they had to be circumcised in order to be right with God. And Paul makes it clear, no, you are circumcised by putting off the sins of the flesh. Uh, by the circumcision of Christ, okay, this is what he goes on to talk about here, um, and then he starts to move into, into verse 12 here. So let me, let me read through that. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. You are buried by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. Paul says that these Gentile Christians find their true circumcision in baptism, the process of being water baptized. Now, Christians don't need to be circumcised. They do need to be baptized. Not, not as a guarantee or, uh, of, of salvation. It's, it's what it is. It's a step of obedience that we are asked to follow by Jesus himself. Now, even the Old Testament acknowledges that there were two types of circ circumcision. This is not a New Testament concept. One of the body, one of the heart. Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah chapter 9, Ezekiel 44. Uh, we understand that there's two types of circumcision the physical one and the one of the heart. And sincere baptism shows that the circumcision of the heart has taken place. That's why it's so important. Can I just say to you, if you're an adult and you've never been water baptized, uh, then I want to encourage you to do it, okay? Um, pride will stop you from doing it. Well, I've been a Christian too long. It'd be too embarrassing, whatever. Uh, you need to stop worrying about what other people think. 
uh, you really need to worry about what Jesus and God thinks. And worry is probably the wrong word. Uh, nothing, let me explain, tell you, nothing bad can happen to you. As a pastor, I've been asked, well, cons- well, well, well what, what, you know, well, you know, but I was baptized as a kid by my parents. So I don't want to upset them. Hey, when, when, you're bapt- when, you're, when your parents baptized you as a baby or christened you, that's great. That's great that they introduced you to a relationship with God and that they uh, raised you in the ways of the Lord. Fantastic. Great. This should be not be seen as something competing with that. This should be something as seen as solidifying what your parents did all those years ago of saying, yes, I'm now making a decision by myself as an adult to enter the waters of baptism. Why? Because I want to show that my heart has been circumcised. I've gotten rid of what I need to get rid of. Baptism answers circumcision, but it, but it, doesn't, it doesn't illustrate it. Uh, but it does illustrate our identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We were buried with Jesus when you go under the water. It's that, that illustration of being buried with him. And then we're raised, come up out of the water. It's, it's the illustration of coming up and being raised up out of the water. David Guzik said this, it is as if Paul wrote, circumcision is not important. What is important is the spiritual cutting away of the flesh that Jesus performs in the life of every believer. If you want a ceremony to mark the spiritual transformation in your life, then look to your water baptism and not to your circumcision. Um, Paul doesn't say that circumcision and baptism are the same thing. He's saying that circumcision is unnecessary for salvation because we are identified in Jesus and we are baptized to show that. Um, Curtis Vaughan, the emphasis of the verse, however, is not on the analogy between circumcision and baptism. That concept, though implied, is soon dismissed. And the thought shifts to that of baptism as symbolizing the believer's participation in the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul understood that the power of regeneration was not in baptism or received by the act of baptism, but received through faith in the working of God. Verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Uh, You being dead, this is the place of every person before they are raised with him through faith in the working of God that Paul talks about in Colossians 2 verse 12. Before we have new life, we're dead. Before a person comes to new life in Jesus, it's not like you're sick or you need a doctor. You're a dead person and you need a savior. That's a massive difference. We're not only made alive, but we're made alive together with him. Spurgeon said this, it is true that he gave us life from the dead. He gave us pardon of sin. He gave us imputed righteousness. These are all precious things. But you see, we're not content with them. We have received Christ himself. The Son of God has been poured out into us and we have received him and appropriated him. Being dead in your trespasses and and the uncircumcision of your flesh means that before we have new life in Jesus, we are dead in our sin. Trespasses are just a specific kind of sin which uh, is kind of like overstepping a boundary. That's kind of, the, if you want to look at the difference between a trespass and a sin, 
They both they're both sins. Okay, trespasses is overstepping. It's kind of an identification process of what sin it is that you're actually committing. We're dead because we overstep God's boundary in our sin and our internal rebellion. But Jesus has made us alive together with Him. We can't make ourselves alive. God can make us alive together with Jesus. We can never be made alive apart from Jesus. And this new birth being made alive and cleansing, forgiving you all, they actually go together as features of the new covenant. But they were prophesied by Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. And then in the New Testament in John chapter 3. Uh, now, the words having forgiven you is the ancient Greek word. So it's not a, not a modern Greek word. It's an ancient Greek word. It wasn't even used anymore at the time of Paul. Was the word charizomai. And it was a verb form of the ancient, ancient Greek word, an even older Greek word, charis, which is the word for grace. We are forgiven by grace, a gift we don't deserve. This is what Paul was trying to say to the church in Colossae. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I love the imagery of this. The handwriting of requirements has in mind all the list of all the things we've done wrong and our moral debt before God, which is a debt that none of us can completely pay because we're not perfect. But it can be taken out of the way by payment from somebody who is perfect, and that only person is Jesus. Now, the term handwriting is a general word used here for a handwritten document. And it means that the document that once condemned us, okay, was has now been taken out of the way and it has been nailed to the cross. Um, Jesus not only paid for the writing that was against us, he also took it out of the way and then nailed it to the cross. He did everything possible to make certain that the handwriting of requirements that was against us could no longer accuse us. Remember all the, you know, the list of accusations uh, of Jesus' crime were, were put on the cross, you know, which was that he called himself the King of Kings and the King of the Jews. And, you know, um, uh, that was hung above his head in Matthew 27. And since we are identified with Jesus in his death on the cross, Romans 6, it is as if the handwriting of requirements that was against us was also nailed to the cross, just like the accusation that was made against Jesus. Verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public, a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. Now, this is amazing because this is, this is about the incredible aspect of Jesus' work on the cross where he disarmed principalities and powers. These ranks of hostile, angelic, fallen beings, and you can read about them in Romans 8.38, Ephesians 1.21, Ephesians 3.10, Ephesians 6.12, they don't have the same weapons to use against Christians that they have against those who are not in Jesus. Paul shows us the paradox of the cross here, that the victorious Jesus took the spiritual powers uh, that were animating these earthly powers and then stripped them, held them up to contempt, and publicly triumphed over them, says David Guzik. Um, William Bruce says this, We can only imagine how Satan, 
And every dark, gleeful demon attacked Jesus as he hung on the cross on our behalf, as if he were a guilty sinner. As he was suspended there, bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness, they imagined they had him at their mercy and flung themselves on him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their attack without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of the armor in which they trusted and held them aloft in his outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. I love that. Paul wrote, in another place, that the rulers of this age, by which he meant the, the spiritual powers of darkness and their earthly representatives, they had, had they known what was going to happen on the cross, they would never actually have crucified Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.8, had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were defeating themselves by nailing Jesus to the cross, and they didn't even know it. Um... Now, here's what you, ha you have to understand. If you're a Christ follower, you must listen to this, okay? Against a Christ-following believer, what weapons do demonic spirits now have over you? Because they've been disarmed, right? I'll tell you, all they have is their ability to deceive you and scare you. That's it. Deception and fear. They have nothing else. That's the only power they have towards us. Now, those two things are only power if we let them use that as power against us. The weapons that are in our hands is, is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. That's not in their hands, that's in our hands. And one day, you and I will get to see how very afraid of us they really were and really are. They're, they're scared stiff of you when you've got the word of God. Because all they've got is the ability to try and deceive you and get you scared. God, 1 Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a love, power, and a sound mind. And if you've got fear today and anxiety, man, I come against that in the name of Jesus. And I pray you'd be set free and have an understanding that you've got this, the sharpest sword in your hands, the word of God, and that demons are running away from you when you start wielding that thing around. They're like, oh my goodness, get out of the road. He's using the word. Look at her. She's just quoted scripture. Get out. You know what's coming. That's what we need to understand because Jesus triumphed over them on the cross. Paul's using similar phrasing here that he uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he had in mind the Roman victory parade, where the conquering general leads his defeated captives through the streets in triumph. David Guzik says this, perhaps Satan for a moment thought that he had won at the cross. But hell's imagined victory was turned into a defeat that disarmed every spiritual being who fights against those living under the light and power of the cross. The public spectacle of defeated demonic spirits makes their defeat all the more humiliating. Verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come but the substance is of Christ. Uh, the opening word, so, at the beginning of the, the verse uh, 16 here, is very important because it connects the thought of the previous verses to this thought. Because Jesus triumphed on the cross, we are to let no one judge us in food or in drink or other matters related to legalism. Because a life that's centered on Jesus and what he did on the cross has no place for legalism. The Old Testament law had certain provisions 
that are done away with in Jesus, uh, the, you know, regarding the food and all those kind of things. Now, it isn't that those laws are bad, okay? It's simply that they were a shadow of things to come. Once the substance, Jesus Christ, has come, we don't need to shadow anymore. Now, the point is very clear. The days to be observed and the foods as observed under the Mosaic law, they're not binding upon New Testament, New Covenant people. The shadow has passed, the reality has come. So for the Christian, all foods are pure. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4. All days belong to God, not just some. So let me make this clear because this is important. Christian, if you're a Christian, if you want to keep a kosher diet, go for it. If you want to observe the Sabbath and the days and all those things, go for it. There's nothing wrong with those things. But we can't think that doing those things makes us somehow closer to God or helps our salvation. Um, what we need to do is understand that everything in our completeness is just purely about what Jesus did on the cross. Verse Uh, 18, let's go on here. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Um, Let's talk about the first half of that verse. Uh, Taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. These aspects of false humility and the worship of angels were parts of the false teaching that was troubling the, the, the Colossian Christians. And, and the antidote for both of these false teachings is just having simply more of Jesus and making sure that he was lifted up and exalted above the angels. Curtis Vaughan says, that is to say, the heretics probably insisted that their worship of angels rather than the supreme God was an expression of humility on their part. In other words, like, oh, we just worship the angels because, you know, when we're humble, you know, we don't think of ourselves as good enough to worship God. So we just worship the, the, the mediary. See, false humility and the worship of angels do not make anybody more spiritual. Instead, holding fast to Jesus as the head is what makes us more spiritual. Verse uh, 19. And not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up the visual mind, not holding fast to the head. Okay, let's go back over that. This describes the spiritual arrogance of these false teachers and those who believed what they taught. Uh, there are very few things more dangerous to Christians than spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance. Which is why Paul then goes on to say, from whom all the body, all the body. When these strange mystical movements start to rise up in the church, they don't appeal to the whole body. They just appeal to a few elite Christians, the ones who get it. Oh, we're more spiritual because we get it and you don't because you're kind of sad. This is not the case under Jesus Christ. He wants all the body to grow grow together and grows with the increase, which is from God. That's God's plan for church growth. We remain faithful. We remain connected to Jesus as the head. God gives the increase. Okay, verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Uh, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So he's asking them, why, why do you do this? Now he says, do not, do not, do not. 
which is a perfect description of a legalistic religion. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Um, and defines more of it by... What it does is it ends up defining you by what you don't do as opposed to defining you by what you do do. Uh, Christianity is a moral religion. There are things for us to responsibilities for us, moral codes for us to keep. Uh, and it does have very clear moral boundaries. But at its foundation, Christianity is a religion of positive action. Um, it, it's it's People perceive Christianity to be, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But it's actually not. It's actually a whole lot of freedom of things that we are called to do. But then we have moral boundaries. Now, how do we separate from those things? You died with Christ from basic principles of the world. Remember, this is the, the key to living above legalism. Um, our identification with Jesus in both his death and resurrection, which is you know, what Paul talked about in Colossians 2 verse 12, becomes the foundation of our Christian life instead of us trying to keep the law. Uh, now, according to the commandments and doctrines of men, one aspect of legalism is that the doctrine of men are promoted as the laws of God. They're taught as if they're equal. That's where you've seen you know, new religions even over the last uh, 150, 200 years have come about because of an abuse of this, not understanding this. The doctrines of men have been have been promoted as as if they were the laws of God, and they've been incredibly deceptive and led a lot of people away from true faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-opposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but have no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul says, listen, these things might appear very noble and very smart, and very wise, um, and, and, and contain a lot of humility, but it's false humility. It's not real. It might appear wise, but it's not wise. Uh, we might regard this statement here by Paul as the greatest indictment against legalism in the Bible, this, this very verse, because... Uh, at the end of the day, legalism's rules have no value in restraining the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, William Bruce said, legalism doesn't restrain the flesh. It feeds the flesh in a subtle and powerful way. Now, what is self-imposed religion? Self-imposed religion. Um, that is man trying to reach to God, trying to adjust himself by keeping a list of rules. Christianity is God reaching down to mankind in love through Jesus Christ. That's why in Ephesians, Paul says you have to just sit in what Jesus has done. Isn't that, you, you can't try and reach up and grab hold of him. He's going to come and grab a hold of you by you accepting the free gift of salvation. Uh, my observation from the second half of Colossians chapter 2 is that you can start to see Paul's desperation to constantly teach the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In other words, nothing matters apart from Jesus and what he did on the cross. Why? Because he's the only one who has ever triumphed over evil. And if you start to listen to anybody else but Jesus, you're listening to somebody else who has not triumphed over evil, so therefore you are listening to evil itself. See, there's Jesus and evil. <laughs> um, 
And what we have is we have a, an understanding of our desperation should be to make everything we do about Jesus and him crucified, which was what Paul said that he would boast in nothing else apart from. And so that is a reminder to us today. Heavenly Father, help us to always keep our eyes on Jesus, what he did on the cross and how he paid the price and triumphed over the enemy. Thank you that our sins were nailed to that cross. And thank you for the freedom that we have. That we don't have to live in legalism, but we can live loving the grace of God that is found in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.